Hey there, welcome to night school. And first off, I'm going to say something happened last episode that's never actually happened before, which is I accidentally recorded the episode using my laptop speakers. You know, you have to assign which microphone you're going to use. And so I was talking into my normal mic, but it was actually my laptop speakers about a foot away from me, a couple feet away from me that was picking me up. So if that episode sounded strange, yeah, no, that's why. But it's good to have some variety. You know, I, I think it's good. In the same way, I like the idea that there are these raw mobile episodes. But it really does make you go inward with your vanity where I'm like, wow, my voice sounds substantially different. When I'm talking into a microphone, into a mixer versus talking into my phone versus now getting picked up with this like roomy, this room sound laptop speaker or laptop microphone, you know, it it really makes you go inward with your vanity and go, oh, I sound, I sound different depending on which device is picking me up because I can Barely, li- I mean, I can barely listen to myself talk as it is, but I can barely listen to myself when I play back those mobile episodes. It, it does something like the compression of the phone microphone, like brings out this like higher pitch thing that I hear. I don't even know what it is, and it, it it doesn't help that I often start out talking calmly, and then by the end of the episode, I'm yelling over cars and just yelling in general. So that doesn't help either. Because it turns out you yourself respond differently depending on where the microphone is. You yourself talk differently depending on which device you're talking into and what you're even doing. Because like while you're walking, you're naturally going to you know, be using your breath, using your lungs. But anyway, you know, enough about my voice. Turns out you're going to have to listen to it the rest of this episode anyway. And while we're on that subject, while we're on the subject of vanity and all that, I got a a message about a week ago, I guess it was, from Joe. Shout out to Joe. And that's lady, a lady named Joe, Lady Joe in England. She asked about the YouTube show. She asked me how to access it because she couldn't find it. That's the thing. When I updated my website... I removed the link to this show, and I removed the link to the YouTube channel. I just feel more comfortable not having links to those on my website. Because we are in a climate right now where you can be misinterpreted, or people you know, will not give you the benefit of the doubt. And it's not that I'm afraid of repercussions for the things I say on this show, It's just, you know, it's just the climate we're in. I'd rather have people going to my website to just look at my art and to not have it be this assortment of everything I'm involved in or have been involved in. So anyway, that was the rationale for not including those. I'd rather have this be kind of, you know, keep it, you know, closer to its nature, which is kind of an underground radio show. And then the YouTube channel hasn't been updated in probably years and that captured a certain phase, you know, I, that was an experiment. I think you have to try experiments with these things. And over the years, I've gotten very comfortable talking, obviously. I've gotten very comfortable talking into a microphone and just letting whatever come out, embarrassing things, as well as things I'm, I guess I'm proud of. But I wanted to try an experiment some years back where I was like, well, what would, be, what would it be like to talk on video? 
because now you're not just self-conscious of your voice alone, but you're also self-conscious of the entire thing. And not that I was looking to do something with any high production value. It's just like grainy webcam footage of me in my old house, which was like this rustic cabin sort of atmosphere. And I feel like that was a good little phase. It was cool to do that. It was cool to play around with the idea of, hey, I'm, on, I'm not only talking, but I'm also on video. I get to have two layers of self-consciousness. But after I moved out of that house, it, it just seemed like one more unnecessary thing, like the idea of having now three shows and people having to go to this other place to watch me do yet another show that it wasn't like it was a thing where the same episodes were going up in both places and that simply had a video version because that's what a lot of podcasts do, obviously. They have a video version of every podcast that goes on YouTube, and then they have the audio version of the same episode on other platforms. And that's not what it was. I mean, School Night TV, as I called it, was its own little thing. And it was a fun little experiment. It was cool to be on camera, but it was also not something that I really felt the need to keep doing. It was one more thing I don't have time for but I'm glad I did it. And it captured that period really well. I'm glad that that house was documented because that house had a certain atmosphere. And I was also uploading rips from my own 45 collection. I was also uploading those there and making weird little, uh, I don't even know what to call them, like video collages, just uploading random photos. Some of it probably is really disturbing because I'll get, you know, like I, I think I've mentioned on here, I've interacted with relatives of people whose 45s I uploaded. Like there are a couple people who are just obscure, every night's a school night style artists from the 50s, 60s, that era. And I've actually had, I had the, I believe it was the granddaughter of Mike Yeager. And I mean, who knows who that is? Nobody. Just some guy who released a couple 45s. But I had her, or I had somebody, no, it wasn't, that was a different one. I had somebody's granddaughter contact me and was just happy to hear her grandfather sing and talked about how he used to sing to her and she was happy to hear his recorded music. But I had somebody who knew Mike Yeager who mentioned something about how he was heavily influenced by Elvis. So just having those kinds of interactions are cool. And speaking of being self-conscious, that made me incredibly self-conscious because of these video collages I made where I would just dump photos from my hard drive into the video editor just not even really think it through. And some of them are disturbing and creepy in context or just confusing. More more that, more so confusing, which it turns out is more creepy to normal people than actual creepy things. Like people love their like nightmare before Christmas skull aesthetic aesthetic because they know what it is. Like even if it's more morbid than that, even if it's like a straight up horror movie sort of visual because they associate it with something, it actually disturbs them less than if they were simply confused. And you can see that with social, this is going off, you know, away from the YouTube channel. But anyway, you know, it, in my experience socially, like people will accept horrible things from somebody in their social group and they might not like it and they might come down hard on that person but they're more forgiving about it than just being confused by somebody. Like if somebody doesn't get you, it bothers them more than if you're a bad person or you did something bad and they get you. Like they'd rather get you, they'd rather understand you 
in your badness than simply be confused by you in your neutrality is my experience socially. And a lot of my friends have had the same experience. This is something that I feel like my friends and I have bonded over. We have a tendency to confuse people more than anything. And that sometimes that's the worst thing socially. Uh, but, uh, you know, it made, it made me self-conscious that like relatives of these singers, these obscure singers who looked up their their older relatives' music found my weird videos. I don't think anybody said anything, but it still made me self-conscious. It's like, why didn't I just upload a picture of the 45 and leave it at that? Why did I have to upload a photo of like a little boy looking through a girl's window in binoculars? You know, you know what I mean? But uh, anyway... Joe was asking me about the YouTube channel, and I sent her the link. And when I created that channel, I don't know if I'm not important enough. I don't know if I just don't know what I'm doing or both. But I was never able to have an actual URL. Like, you can't go to YouTube.com slash school night and go to my page. It's got some weird number, you know, it's some code. So it's hard to find in that regard. And so if you look up School Night TV, if you're interested, the only reason I'm bringing this up is that somebody expressed interest in the old YouTube videos, and I have made it very difficult to find them. I didn't actually intentionally make the YouTube channel difficult. It's just that it's no longer linked on my page. So if you want to find that, I don't know, let me know. Email if you really can't find it and you're interested, es at ericstonefelt.com. I, th- I believe that forwards to my personal email. So feel free to email me if you can't find it and you're interested. Although, honestly, I don't know. I don't even know what I would think about the things I said. And that's another thing about video is I do try to listen back to every every night to school night, night school episode I do at least once, even just for a quality control reason, some level of vanity, but still there's a quality control element to that. But it adds a whole other layer to it when you're watching yourself talk. Like when you're watching yourself speak, it adds a whole other layer to this, and I'm not into that. And then last year, like when Coronavice started, I I did a few uh, Facebook live streams that I don't think anybody even watched or was interested in, maybe a couple people I know. But that's a much different group of people for me. Like over the years, that's really become like a family and family friends and like former coworker sort of page. And so I realized while I was doing that, yeah, this probably isn't the, even though I'm probably toning it down while I'm doing this, it's still, this probably isn't the best place for it, but hey, who cares? But, you know, thinking about that whole idea, like the idea of doing video yourself, because you think about podcasts and this will be a, this will be a pretty meta episode, but you think about podcasts and the popularity of them and I, which I believe is waning you know, they, it reached a saturation point, you know, podcasts are probably at peak saturation. They probably already hit peak popularity. And I think we'll see that trend wane. They'll, they'll still be around. Of course, podcasts will still be around. I don't think anybody's going to stop doing them all of a sudden, but I do think we're on the, the downward descent as far as podcasting goes. Cause one of the reasons is you see where people gravitate toward traditional formats where I, one of the big appeals for me, and I believe a lot of people with podcasting is that it was raw. Like even if there was a level of production value, like even if it was pro sounding or for the ones that do video pro looking, 
professional, there was still a rawness to it where it wasn't like watching your typical interview. It was off the cuff. It was rambling. People weren't necessarily there to promote themselves. I mean, as a kid, you notice watching late night talk shows where it's like everybody on here is here to promote a movie. They go through this little initial, you know, this exchange of sound bites where the host gives them a prompt and they they communicate, oh, I'm an, I'm an actor and I'm going to give a response that communicates I have a sense of humor. You know, they give them this little prompt and then they go, well, tell me about your new movie. And I think everybody got sick of that because it's just like, oh, yeah, this person's on here to promote that. This isn't organic. And so the appeal of podcasting was obviously that it was something much more organic. And it wasn't as it, it wasn't at the mercy of the it wasn't at the mercy of professionalism and it wasn't at the mercy of a network, a television network a movie studio, a, you know, a radio show, a radio, um, whatever, whatever radio shows are on. What are those called again? Stations, not at the mercy of the station, not even at the mercy of the regulatory bodies. The F, F is it the FDA? That's food, food and drug. Turns out this is all food. It's all food and drug to me, baby. The uh, RCC, whatever it is, uh, who cares? Who cares what the acronym is for these people who try to tell you what you can say and not say? Honestly, why even give them the respect of remembering their acronym, let alone what it stands for? But that was the appeal. Is Oh, this is something, I'm getting something that's more real. And it doesn't feel like all of those other interviews, like all of those talk shows. But it's funny because it became that. And now it's it's not entirely uncommon, and it's been this way for years. But still, it's I feel like it becomes more and more common that when you do see a podcast a podcast guest on someone's show, chances are they're going to pop up on a whole bunch of other ones within a week or two because they are promoting something, and that takes things down a notch, you know, because you're like, oh yeah, I don't want to hear this person have the same conversation seven times. And nobody's forcing you. Of course, there's always the nobody's forcing you. Nobody's forcing you to listen. But it does do something to the, because chances are, if you listen to one podcast, there's a good chance that you at least pay attention to other podcasts that kind of operate in the same, you know, the same group of people, the same, you know, a network of people. And so when you see the same person pop up seven times in the span of 10 days, you're just like, ah, yeah, they're promoting something. And do I really need to hear this person talk? and go through the same conversation this many times. And that brings things down a notch, and I think that's become more and more common. And you see where people are really just doing talk shows now. And a funny one is Sammy the Bull Gravano, the former mafia member. He has a podcast. I'm not sure what makes it a podcast, though. It really makes you do this stupid, like, well, what makes a podcast a podcast? You know, it really makes you ask a stupid question like that because watching it, it's like he releases a YouTube video of him sitting in a chair talking for 15 minutes. And that's not his podcast. That's just like a promotional thing that he does where he'll tell like a short anecdote and then he'll say like, like and subscribe and uh, wait for the next episode of the podcast. And he does do this podcast, but it's basically a document. It's basically a documentary. It has high production value. It has like... It'll have music behind the talking. It'll have visuals. 
it'll have other people talking. It's not it's like like and not other people talking in conversation. It'll include excerpts like you would see in a documentary, like you would hear in a documentary. And so it's just kind of like you're just kind of making a little like audio based documentary. There's nothing about this that really makes it a podcast or you even think about very popular podcasts, podcasts like uh, Joe Rogan, like Joe Rogan show. And that shows just a talk show. Like, how is that show any different than when Howard Stern was on TV? You know, when I was a kid, Howard Stern had a TV show and it was him and his crew and whoever he was interviewing in the studio doing their radio interview, but it was just a video version with production value, high production value. And there's no actual difference whatsoever between that, which was being aired in the 90s, versus like a Joe Rogan or any number of podcasts that have the, these in-studio high-production videos and are primarily based around that. So it is a weird thing where it's like, you think about what is it? Well, it's something that is primarily audio-based. It's basically like radio with no rules. But then you can see where human beings gravitate toward, ba- like even though that was the appeal, not just as a listener, like the appeal of podcasts wasn't just the fact that that's what you were listening to. That was the appeal as somebody who makes it. I mean, that's what appealed to me. That's the reason why, because I mean, if you listen to the early episodes when I first started doing this show many years ago, I talked about how I didn't even know what a podcast was. Like I wasn't listening to podcasts. I didn't, you know, you know, I wasn't coming from this place as like, oh, I'm, as such a big fan of podcasts, I thought I'd throw my hat into the ring. I was just like, I guess this is what you call this. I guess you call the something that you upload that's audio based that people can listen to on different devices. I guess that's a podcast. So I might as well call my show that, you know, that was my approach. But it really has, you know, aside from the fact that it's something that people publish themselves in most cases, there's really not much of a difference. And you can see where even though it started in the raw, people gravitate toward production value. People feel the need to turn their show into what's pretty much just an ordinary talk show with somebody promoting something with video. You know, it's just interesting how it went that direction, especially as it became popular, where the thing that made it appealing kind of disappeared and it, and it became the thing that I think it was trying to avoid, which is so common. Uh, so that's one of the reasons why I personally, I've thought about getting more professional about this. I've thought about making a big run at it, a go at it. And that was one of the reasons I tested the waters of doing YouTube videos because I wanted to know how it felt. I wanted to know if that was something that I wanted to add to this show. If I wanted to turn this show into something that would have a video version, a audio version, if I wanted to invest in maybe decent video, decent video equipment. And I decided I didn't want to. I decided that kind of took away the appeal of doing this. And you know, on that show, I was thinking about it. It's funny because when I was doing the YouTube episodes, I never looked at the camera or barely. It was like I set the camera up to kind of catch me from the side and I, I didn't look at the camera, and for the same reasons that I don't like to make eye contact when I'm in a conversation, I like to glance. I'm very much a glancer. Like, I'll glance at someone's eyes, just like I'll glance at the camera. You know, you reconnect. But for me, I lose my train of thought. I'm not able to think in the way that I want to think if I'm looking at someone. Like, I find that a conversation with too much eye contact is distracting. 
And honestly, I find it kind of, uh, I find it off-putting. I find making sustained eye contact off-putting. And I understand the value of it. I understand the value of eye contact, especially now having a dog where eye contact is incredibly important. I've learned that on my own, and I've also learned that from reading about having a dog. They say, you know, eye contact is crucial to establishing your relationship. And you can see where that's what animals, that's how, that's the main way that animals communicate with us. You know, one of the main ways that we communicate with any similar creature is that we make eye contact, and that's a form of communication. Because the fact that a wild animal, a deer, knows to look you in the eye. They know there is something important about the eyes. So the fact that animals, you know, communicate via eye contact, I mean, I understand why human beings get uncomfortable when someone doesn't. I do understand that. But there's been this whole myth created around like, oh, if someone doesn't make eye contact, they're they're, uh, dishonest or they're hiding something. Or maybe they just get more into what they're saying when they don't look, when they're not distracted by your freaking big eyes all the time. Your big eyes are staring at me while I'm talking. So for me, it's like, you know, that was my approach to doing video as well, where it was just like, I don't need to be staring at the camera. And I don't like those videos as a fan. Like when I watch, let's say, YouTube videos from someone, I don't really like that uh, appearance of them like facing the computer head on, staring at the camera. I know that's supposed to make it seem like they're talking to you. And it's kind of weird if they're not looking at you. It's kind of like, well, what are they looking at? Who are they talking to if they're not talking to me and looking at me? So I understand that that makes people feel more connected. Like, you know, for whatever reason that appeals to people to have somebody looking right at them. I personally, I don't really like that as a listener myself. Like, that's one of the good things about interview-based podcasts that are on video is that they're not just staring into the camera at you. Because I don't need that as a listener. And when I was making videos, I didn't want to do it either. Because chances are, if you're staring straight ahead, you're going to be looking at yourself too. Because I found it impossible not to like check the camera. And not even just to look at yourself, but also just to make sure it's working. It's, it's a distraction. To me, it's all a distraction. Just like looking into someone's eyes. Looking into someone's eyes is too much of a distraction for me to think the thoughts I want to think. That explains my, uh, my lack of eye contact, but I've been called out for it. I remember this like 50 year old woman, kind of an acquaintance, a friend of a friend at a party years ago. She was like, you never look people in the eye. And she liked me and everything. Like she liked me, but she, we were having a conversation in the kitchen and I was just like leaning up against the wall, just kind of, who knows what I was saying. And she goes, you never look people in the eye, do you? And it's one of those moments where it's like, why say that to me? You know, this woman didn't even drink, so it wasn't even a drunk comment, but it was just like, why make the conversation about that? Like, does it deeply disturb you? If someone's talking, like, that's the difference too. It's, it's usually if I'm talking, I don't look people in the eye. But if they're talking to me, I will look them in the eye because I'm listening, because I'm not trying to formulate my thoughts. But it's much easier for me to not be staring at someone's face. 
but anyways, some thoughts uh, that just who know who knew. That's what that's what happens. You can thank Joe for this because she asked me about the YouTube channel. Now I'm talking all about eye contact and podcast, like meta podcast talk and all this stuff. It's good to talk about this stuff, though. I don't mind it. It does relate to all the technology talk, you know, and a recurring theme on this show is just, you know, where exactly does nature begin and end? And to go back into that a little bit, the important thing I want to stress is that even though I make the point that all of our technology is a manifestation of nature too, doesn't mean we have to accept it. It doesn't mean we have to encourage it or participate in it. I think that's something I want to make clear because, as I mentioned recently, certain people have this idea that nature equals good. That nature is a, an expression that if something is natural, it means that you should embrace it. And, you know, some wise guy would be like, well, yeah, what about poison ivy? Exactly. That's actually a really good point. Even though it's a cliche point to make, it's the truth. It's like, you can accept that nature includes poisons. It includes viciousness. Like you can say, even to get away from like poison and what animals do to each other, you know, even just something like rain. You look at rain and you go, rain is pretty fucking natural, isn't it? Rain is pretty fucking natural. You know, you can make that point and not hate rain and be like, yeah, we need rain. We know why we need rain. If you live in the Pacific Northwest, you know why it rains so much. And all this lush green beauty is a byproduct of that. But, you know, you also don't want to go stand out in the rain. Oh, rain is natural. So go stand out in it for 10 hours and never get dry. Oh, it's, it looks like the forecast says, looks like the forecast says it's going to be rainy for the next 10 days. And did you know rain is natural? Therefore, you can go stand out in the rain all day, every day for 10 straight days without ever finding shelter. You know what? Hell, don't even wear a jacket. Don't even wear a jacket because rain is natural. No, you'll die. You'll get sick. It doesn't make rain any less natural. It doesn't make rain any less essential. But you don't want to go just stand out in the rain endlessly. And I think you can take the same approach to technology. And when I say technology is a manifestation of nature, you know, I'm not saying that you have to embrace everything about it. And I defend some aspects. Like some of it's devil's advocacy. You ever heard of devil's advocacy? Some of it's that. You know, some of the things I say about the internet, about phones, some of that is devil's advocate. Because it's very easy for me to be against all these things. Because it's so easy for me to be against all these things, I choose to kind of see it with a, an open mind and say, you know what? There are things about this I don't like. Like social meteor is a lot like the rain, where I think it's natural or it's a manifestation of nature. Does that mean you should be on it all the time? Does that mean you should never dry off? Like, just because rain is necessary and it feels good to go out into it sometimes, it feels good to look out your window and see that it's raining. And other times you look out and you go, God, I wish it would stop raining. Or if you're stuck out in it, you go, 
God, I would really, I really want it to stop raining. You know, so it's, it's, you can have that attitude about it. You can decide not to go out in the rain. You can decide to find shelter. You know, you can decide to wear a jacket, a rain jacket, a rain jacket. You can decide to do that. In the same way you can decide not to just spend all your time on social media or to not get emotionally invested in everything you see, to not be addicted to your nature phone. So that's sort of the approach I take, is if these things are a manifestation of nature, I'm not defending them. Or rather, I'm not defending everything about them. I'm trying to use these things as tools. You know, I'm trying to think like, I don't want to limit myself. It's for the same reason that I tried doing a little YouTube show. Did I really want to do a YouTube show? No, I actually didn't. I just thought, you know, this is a way of kind of getting out of my comfort zone, trying to capture both audio and video, put myself on camera with something I've never done. You know, so it was a little experiment. I wanted to see if that tool was useful to me as a pagan, as a pagan man. I wanted to know if YouTube was a useful tool. Did I love did I love saying, "Hey, check out my YouTube show?" No. But I wanted to test out the tool. You ever heard of testing out the tools? You know, it's something you might consider doing rather than just saying every new tool is bad. Because you might find out it actually is useful in a way you didn't expect. But you should also know when to not use that tool. Like a chainsaw is an amazing tool. You can easily cut down a tree with this bizarre device. I mean, a chainsaw is a bizarre device. You can easily cut down a tree with it. Does that mean you should wave it around inside of your house? Does that mean you should like go up to objects in your house and just cut them in half? Maybe. Sounds fun. But it's like just because the chainsaw has a particular use and is a very useful tool doesn't mean that you're just all aboard the chainsaw train, which is a cool visual, like a train that's surrounded by a a chainsaw. The chainsaw train, imagine that. Imagine if a train ran through town and it had like a a buzzing chainsaw surrounding it. It's a good way to keep, uh, what are they called? Uh, I was going to call them hoppers, hobos. Train hoppers, train, it's a good way of keeping the train hopping hobos out is to have a chainsaw buzzing all around the perimeter of the train, the chainsaw train. No, but just because you see a use for chainsaws doesn't mean your life revolves around chainsaws. It doesn't mean you think chainsaws are only good. It just means it's a tool. And so that's an, it's an important point that I want to hammer home when I talk about nature, when I talk about Everything that we create is also nature too, because it doesn't it doesn't make it good or bad. Is my point. And uh, with that idea, I mean, you can approach everything that way. People, it's like finding a, a wife, finding a wife. Like people are natural. You're attracted to women, so you look at them. You're attracted to many of them, some of them, a couple of them. In my case, just like seems like a couple of them these days. Uh, but uh, so you got that going on. And then, 
you know, are you going to say, though, that because it is natural for me as a man to want to have a relationship with a woman so that I can start a family, so that I can go through the process of life, does that mean that every woman is right for me? No, of course not. Everybody knows, you know, everybody goes through those uh, trials of meeting somebody even though they're attracted to them even though they feel that they need a woman in their life the reality is you you don't it's not like you can just put any single woman in that role and it'll work out so you have to be just as discriminate with everything everything you do and and you know you should get to a point in your life where you're not having to like weigh your options all the time and i think that's where having Beliefs. I think that's where having a sense of meaning or, dare I say, a philosophy helps, a discipline. I think that's where that helps is because it allows you to spend less time constantly weighing your options. Because you don't want to go through life going, well, there's uh, YouTube exists now. Should I start doing video or should I not? Should I? Should I not? You don't want to go through that process with everything. Oh, there's a brand new me phone. They made a they they made a brand new me phone. It's me phone eight point nine. Do you want to constantly be asking yourself, do I need it? Do I not need it? You know, I think having values, just having a sense of purpose in life helps you helps many of these options become automatic. Especially the more you stick to the more that you live up to to whatever it is you think you believe or you do believe, you know, the more you do that, I think the more automatic becomes. But then you should shake it up. You know, you should shake it up a little bit. So life's just a balance between that of being like, I want things to be automatic enough to where I'm not constantly, excuse me, sound like I was going to cry, but I was, it was like a burp and a yawn, excuse me. No, but you don't want everything to be so automatic that your entire life is automatic. You don't want to just be, that's where the word automaton comes from. You know, you don't want to be an, an actual automaton, an AA, an actual automaton who just everything is laid out for you because a lot of people live that way. A lot of people just choose the options that they're told to take and not because they're sheep, but because it's, it feels safe. You don't have to sit there and weigh your options and consider whether you're doing the right thing. It makes you feel less neurotic when you can just say, I'm doing this, whether it's because you, whether it's because it's monkey see or monk and, and monkey do, or whether it's because you just have discipline and an ingrained system for interacting with the world doesn't really you know matter. It's like the idea is to make your life less neurotic. And in my case, I don't know that there's that wave is never going to be stopped. But I do try to reason these things out because I try to consider, you know, well, you know, it'd be very easy for me to be one of these people who hates social media. It'd be very easy for me to be someone who hates every smartphone. I could be a total Luddite. I could be Ted Kaczynski. Like, that is something that is available to me. Like, I would not be LARPing if I became that. But I don't want to become that. Not because I'm worried about, oh God, if I, if I become a total Luddite and I reject modern culture, 
I'm going to go mail bombs to random scientists and computer salesmen. You know, not because I would do that, but I would be a negative curmudgeon who just hates on everything just because it's new, just because it's not aesthetically appealing to me. I could easily be that person who lives that way and just like, I hate it all. I hate it all. I hate you kids and your smartphones. I hate you. I could easily be that. So I have to fight that. And I do feel that my life is a balance between, you know, that I guess I would call it original nature, original nature. Like when I say original nature, what I mean are trees, organic things, non-digital. And I do feel that, you know, as much as a 21st century schizoid man can do, I feel that I've struck a balance with that. And I'm always trying to find a better balance because it doesn't feel entirely right. It doesn't feel entirely reconciled to be both a modern man who's willing to use tools that might help me in some way. And that person who does just love the aesthetic of trees, classic a, the classic beauty of original nature, a mountain with nothing around it. And when you see construction going on, you think, God, do they really need to add more? Do they really need to do that? And so it doesn't, well, it doesn't feel reconciled to me. I don't feel like I've completely found the reconciliation between those things. I do feel like, you know, my life is a manageable balance between them. And, uh, you know, and just speaking of like criticizing things, but not seeing them as inherently bad. Like I can tell you exactly what I don't like about digital platforms, for example, like social media or being a big one. As I've said before, what I don't like about social media or is the quantification, I guess you would say of it. I don't like that it quantifies things like likes, favorites, subscribers, followers, views, or in the business imprints, in advertising as they call them, imprints. And I like how they come up with different language for things that are all very similar. Like in digital advertising, if you've ever been involved with like digital ad campaigns, there are what they call imprints, which I, I believe that refers to whenever somebody simply sees an ad online. Like if you see an online, an online advertisement, that is called an imprint because it means that it was on somebody's page. Like somebody went to that page that has the advertisement on it and that is tracked. That information is tracked. And then they call it engagement if somebody clicks on the advertisement. So this world of imprints, and people see their own online profiles that way in terms of imprints. They see it in terms of numbers. And this is where I agree with people who are critical of social media, which is that people end up dependent on numbers. And that includes people clicking the like button. Because social media isn't substantially different from live journal. I mean, that was a form of social media. Uh, it, it wasn't different than, you know, obviously MySpace was an earlier one, forums, that sort of thing. 
where they didn't have a like button. The idea was that if you cared enough, you would say something. Online journals used, used that system where if you cared enough, you would reply. But beyond that, the person making a post online didn't know who saw it. There was this panopticon effect where you never knew who was actually watching. And this has escalated because it started out with just likes. Oh, these people liked your post. It's a way of saying like I, and in most cases, it's not even about the content. Most of it's about I'm communicating to you that I approve of you. Or it's manipulative. It's like a guy liking a girl's posts to communicate, hey, baby. Hey, you know, it's guys doing it for those reasons, too. So it's easily manipulated, one. And then, two, it's just kind of an empty gesture. And then people start striving for that. It distorts people's view of what it is to be listened to or acknowledged. As I've said on here before, it's an amazing thing in life when you're talking to one person and you know that they're listening to you. Because you can be talking to your best friend and you realize they've tuned out every word. And you know what? I do it a lot to my friends. They'll be talking to me and I realize I've been tuning them out. I'm either thinking about what I'm going to say. I'm thinking about something else. Maybe I'm just not interested. Maybe what they're telling me just isn't interesting to me, even though they're my friend. But in those moments where even having a single person listen to what you have to say and acknowledge it, that's an incredible feat. That's a success in life. But when people get used to the idea of 50, 100, 1,000, a million people, that really distorts their view of what it is to be acknowledged. And they start thinking that you need more and more. You need higher numbers of acknowledgement from people. And so I wish that things hadn't gone in that direction. And another version of that that I really find disturbing is when it lets you know who's seen it. And I talked about this a while back because I didn't even know what an Instagram story was. You know, I was using like an old version of Instagram. And at some point I became aware of Instagram stories. And I thought like, oh, I guess this is so that people can put something up temporarily. It's something they don't want to represent them permanently, like a post. They don't want to put this on their account, you know, so that it's like it's always there you know, like a normal Instagram post. It's a way of putting something up that's transient. And then I noticed that people were primarily using that. Like the people I know, especially women, I'm not saying it it means anything. I'm just saying I've noticed that primarily women that I know really latched on to this story thing. And I like it from the point of view that it's something that people see for a day and then it goes away. There is something appealing about that, of not cherishing everything you put online. I think there is something cool about that idea of like, we don't need to cherish everything. Here's a way for us just to throw something out in the wind. If people see it during this little window of time, they see it. It's good for like promotion, I guess. If you're promoting something, it feels slightly less tacky to make it less permanent, I guess. But I thought about it and I was like, I don't think that's the sole appeal. I don't think all of these people are Buddhists who are like, I post Instagram stories just because it's temporary. And it highlights the temporary nature of this digital world that we're inhabiting. 
which itself is a, re a reflection of the temporary illusory world in which we live day to day in our flesh and our flesh and blood bodies. You know, it's like, I don't think that's where a lot of people are coming from. I realized, oh, it shows you who's seen it. Now I know why people are using this. It's telling you who has looked at it. Something you don't know from your other posts. Like you post something on Instagram and either someone favorites it, hearts it, whatever you want to say, and they comment and that's it. But that's And that's all you know. You only know if someone cares enough to click the button or say something. But with these stories, it tells you who's seen it, which is really eerie <laughs> I couldn't think of the right word it is eerie though and I was like oh that's the appeal it gives you a little bit more information on who is noticing you whether they say anything or not it's telling you that somebody looked at this and I believe that's particularly popular not because people want to know every single person who sees these things I think it's because they want to know if a specific person has. Someone who has a crush. Someone who's looking for uh, attention from girls. A girl who's looking for attention from guys. I think she wants to know whether or not they saw it. And it all made sense with that in mind. And I, I don't say any of that to demonize people who do that because that appeals to people for obvious reasons. And you can see where I don't... This doesn't happen for me because I'm on an old Android... But people have told me they have me phones and, and their me phone tells them if another me phone user saw it. You know, which on a safety level, that's one thing. Like if, if you're worried about a friend or a loved one and you're not hearing back from them, the fact that it'll tell you they saw the message. You know, so again, it's like nature. It's like rain. It's all, all these things I'm talking about. The fact that it tells you if somebody viewed your message or not has a good side because that can tell you that somebody's safe, but maybe they're just busy. Maybe they're mad at you. It could tell you any number of things. It could tell you they're not interested in talking anymore. They're not interested in talking to you, period. It could tell you all of those things. Like you send a message to a girl and it says she saw it and she never replied. If you're smart, if you're in control of your wits, you won't follow that up with, hey, uh, you didn't reply, baby. Why? You know, you're not going to follow it up with that if you have your wits about you because you realize she saw this and that's all I need to know, I guess. I guess she's not interested. I make it sound like I'm just out there cruising, cruising for the, for the ladies, checking the timestamp. I make it sound like that, but no, it's, it's something that can like be helpful. So I'm not saying this is all bad, even though I don't like this direction. But the other side of that is that breeds resentment. You see that somebody, you know, saw something, but they don't say anything. And you think like, well, fuck you too. Well, fuck you too. You know, it makes people think that way, especially people who are not in control of themselves, who are not disciplined. It'll make you resent somebody or make you angry at somebody and I'm sure that happens all the time with men sending women messages. I mean, we know how men respond to ego damage. Sometimes they kill. A man with a damaged ego sometimes kills and everything up to that. So when a man sees that a woman doesn't respond to his message, he might just keep harassing her. 
And that does happen. I mean, you see, I mean, I have friends who have shown me messages from people where people do that to them. All that stuff is real. You know, even though I criticize the left and I'm uh, not, I don't consider myself part of the left, all that stuff is real. Men harass women. Men bother women. Men kill women. Men rape women. And, uh, you know, and I've seen these messages that, female friends of mine have shown me before it's not like they're it's not like every day they're like look at this but they've actually shown me these back and forth and they've just let me scroll through it and i'm just like wow it's interesting to see things from this point of view it's interesting to see just that sort of attention whatever you want to call it um so it has a negative side too. I mean, the fact that you can, you shouldn't need that information is my point though. You shouldn't need to know whether or not someone has seen your message. You shouldn't need to know whether or not someone has seen your story. You shouldn't be thinking in terms of like, oh, I need to know who liked this. I think all we needed was a comment button or a, a comment, you know, a comment fuck, function, excuse me, function. Jesus, uh, I think all we needed was a comment function. And, you know, even thinking about this show, like I don't check the quote unquote metrics. Got to love all this insider lingo. How many imprints did you see in the metrics? The matrix? I said the metrics. Yeah, the matrix. Which reminds me, it's funny when people mishear things. Like I, I had a job like 10 years ago. And there was this old guy, he was from this area, and it's always weird when people from Washington State have like kind of this weird like accent that is just developed on their own. I guess it was just, a, I, you know what, I think it was just an old guy accent. This guy was really old, he was, you know, nearing retirement, his name was Larry. Larry Fair, I liked his name, Larry Fair. And uh, it was when I was working for the census, and... The census would use different restaurants as meeting places for other census members. Like sometimes I would have to drive down south, like the the lower half of Washington state. And just along the way, I would have to stop at different meeting spots and give information, give documents to other census workers that they needed. And that one of the meeting spots was a restaurant that's at the south of the Washington border, right before you get to Portland. And it's called Jolly's. J-O-L-L-Y-S. And I remember that guy, Larry, saying, you're going to meet him at Jolly's. You're going to meet him at Jolly's. And this lady I worked with goes, Charlie's? The restaurant, it's Charlie's? And he goes, Jolly's. It's Jolly's. And it was, this, it was the funniest exchange because it was, it was like a, almost like a who's on first sort of thing. I don't, I don't know if that's right, but uh, it was almost like that sort of exchange. It was almost like slapsticky where he was saying jollies, but because he talked in this way, it sounded like he was saying Charlie's or it was like one of those things where you can't tell. Like to one person, it sounds like he's saying Charlie's to another person. It sounds like he's saying jollies. And it turns out there's a bar in town here called Charlie's. There's probably a bar in every town called Charlie's. So it was just funny, though, that it's like, hey, you're going to meet him at Jolly's. You're going to meet him at Jolly's. It's like Jolly's or Charlie's. But anyway, uh, the ma- the metrics and the matrix. But yeah, I don't really check the, the metrics for any of this. 
and I don't even know how it works. Like, I don't even know if, if somebody listens to this show through iTunes or Google Play, I don't know if that shows up in the SoundCloud statistics. I don't know if it all funnels into the same place. It very well might, which would be humbling. So I really don't know, you know, the full extent that this show gets listened to, but I know it's a very small audience. But in the same way, you can kind of get tricked into thinking it's normal to have an audience of a thousand people, 10,000 people, a million people. You know, you can start to convince yourself that you're somehow not succeeding or you're somehow not doing a good job because you only have 50 people who listen. And I'm under the impression, I'm under the imprint, because impressions are another thing. There's, I, don't, I forget even the difference between an impression and imprint. I know what engagement is. But uh, in online advertising, there's an impression and there's an imprint. And I, I might have used the definition of impression when I described what an imprint is. But guess what? Who cares? Um, but uh, you, know, you can easily get under... When you do something like this, for example, when you do a podcast, you can easily start to think like, oh, you know, like I'd say there's probably about roughly 50 people who periodically listen to this show. That's a total guess. I have no idea if that's accurate. But I would say there's maybe 50 people who occasionally listen. I would guess there's maybe 30 people who consistently listen in, when they have time. I, I would guess. I don't know. And all those people are within probably one or two degrees. If you're not, if you're a total stranger, message me. You know, say hi. I don't know. I like to hear from random people. I like to hear from people who are kind of outside. Like a, a couple people over the years have found this show who are not people I knew. And I always like hearing from them. If, if, if I know you, don't even ever talk to me. No, but uh, it's interesting to hear when, when there's someone who's not within one to two degrees of me. It's kind of weird considering this show is not out there. I'm a nobody. But still, like when I think about the fact that there might be 50 people who periodically listen to my online radio show, that's pretty humbling, the fact that in a world where we're lucky if one person sits there and hears what you have to say face-to-face, the fact that 10 people, the fact that 5 people might listen to what you have to say on your podcast is pretty amazing. 5 people. And I make that point just to say that, like, I don't care about the metrics. I don't care about quantifying these things. I don't feel like that is a necessary function of this tool. That is something for businesses. Like, I've been part of some business conversations before related to social media, and it always makes your skin crawl because it's like, what's our engagement like? Uh, how, how many likes did we get for that? Oh, let's do more of that because it got more likes. It makes total sense from a business perspective, but you shouldn't be looking at your own personal life. You shouldn't be looking at your own creativity solely through that view. It's interesting sometimes to think about. It's interesting sometimes to know how many people are, how many people care. And that's also a way of knowing if what you're doing is palatable. It's, it's a good way of knowing if it's, it's a way of gauging how you come across to people in the digital world, which is interesting if you're doing some kind of self-reflection like, oh, 
everybody seems really averse to everything I say. Or we're back to the confusion thing, where I think that people are less bothered by somebody on social media or who says something highly disagreeable. Like someone is way more comfortable, like, like a Republican is way more comfortable with the idea of a Democrat expl- uh, expressing some stereotypical Democrat opinion on social media than they are somebody expressing something they don't completely understand or can't quite place. Even though the Republican hates the Democrat and vice versa, they're actually more comfortable with each other. And even if they respond with negativity, even if they don't respond, but they just have some internal negative response, they like that more than they like somebody who is just confusing or mysterious. It's how our brains work. It's it's a negativity bias is more attractive than simply being confused. Because again, when we're confused or we don't get somebody, if we can't immediately place what type of person this is and what they actually think about whatever this thing I think is so important is, you know, when you're confused by somebody or you're not sure what they're saying or you're not sure who that person is or where they're coming from, you now, you now have to deal with your own neurosis. Because you start thinking, well, do I agree? Do I disagree? Do I like this person? Do I not like this person? The reason why having a belief system makes all this stuff automatic for both better and worse is that you don't have to respond with confusion. You don't respond with confusion. You go, oh, you're against the border wall and I hate you for it. You're for the border wall, and I like you for it. It makes your response automatic in that way. But you can see with politics where it's just the whole thing is sick. The whole thing is malignant because it gives people this baseline. It makes it so that people are no longer weighing their, their options about what to think about something. They can just choose to accept it or reject it, demonize it or praise it without doing any thinking. And I think politics are a great example of something where you need to be constantly weighing your options. You need to be constantly second-guessing yourself. Politics are the thing that you should be neurotic about. And politics are natural too. Politics are nature, too. But just like nature, politics are both beautiful and horrible. Because the idea of people organizing themselves and representing people and making decisions that impact everybody, making decisions that truly are for the greater good, that is beautiful, and that does exist in politics. But it is such an easily corruptible, manipulative system because you have all of the... You basically have everything that is wrong with like advertising and business, but then you take out the honesty of that, which is that we're trying to sell a product and make money. And you could say that politicians are just doing that too, but it becomes about something else. But you can see where businesses now are political entities just out in the open now. And and people recognize what they're doing. You know, a friend of mine messaged me this morning and he, and it was like a joke about how it's gay pride month and how all the corporations are 
you know, putting their rainbow colors out because it's inherently manipulative. Like that's no different than what I was talking about in a recent episode where I get this junk mail sent to me, you know, in the, in the mailbox and it's in a fake handwriting font. It's in a font that looks like fake handwriting. So that at first glance, you think it's a handwritten letter. That's no different than a company using the rainbow flag. Like, oh, it's gay pride month. We got to, oh, the gay men might buy our product. The gay men might support us. Let's make everything rainbow for a month so that we get all the gay men. You know, it's that same sort of logic. Let's use fake handwriting so that we trick people into thinking we're humans. You know, it's like that sort of idea. And so, you know, politics are nature too. But for all the same reasons that nature is good and bad and everything in between and probably a whole lot beyond, beyond those simple words, uh, you know, politics are, you know, I'd say they're more prone to corruption than a lot of aspects of nature, but they're natural too. I don't want to get too deep into politics here, although I feel like we're already wading into it. Uh, But politics are a belief system that help you make decisions automatically. And that's unfortunate. Because I don't believe, even though politics, I believe, are natural, I don't believe that they should be your baseline. Just like going out in the rain, you should feel the same way about your political neuroses. You should think, okay, I have to think about this because I'm a human being in a civilization who wants the world to be a certain way. I have my opinions. I have my interpretations. And so I have to test the waters. I have to wade out into politics now and again. But I should be ready to get out as soon as possible. I shouldn't dwell in that neuroses, in those neuroses, that neurosis, whether we're pluralizing neurosis or not doesn't matter because... You don't want to spend all your time in that place. And that's where a lot of people have been spending all their time for years now. But the last year we saw where people decided to spend all of their time in this political headspace online and their neuroses are just completely exposed, but yet they're not acknowledging their options. They're not actually acknowledging their neurosis. They're trying to like plow through their neurosis by saying, I have this belief system and therefore I don't have to deal with the fact that politics are inherently neurotic. And so there's a lie in that because I don't think that politics can ever be truly automatic. I don't believe that politics can ever be completely streamlined with who you are as an individual. I believe that politics, while natural, are inherently neurotic, and you should accept that fact. But just like spending time in the rain, you shouldn't spend all your time out in politics. You shouldn't get buried by it. Because you need your neuroses. You need them. When you're trying to weigh your options, when you're second-guessing yourself, when you're caught in some spiral of reflection, that is necessary, but you don't want to be doing that all the time. You don't want that to be your sense of meaning.
This land is mine. God gave this land to me. This brave, this golden land to me. And when the morning sun reveals her hills and plains, I see a land where children can run free.